Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And on June 3rd, 2019, at Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, or WWDC for those who like initialisms, Apple announced that the company was going to officially sunset the venerable iTunes program. In its place will be three Mac desktop apps that are pretty similar to what you can find on iOS devices, Apple mobile devices, in other words. So today I thought it might be fun to trace the history of iTunes, how it came to be, how it changed the music industry, and helped create the business I'm in which is podcasting, in case you haven't caught on yet, and why Apple decided to finally say goodbye. We'll also explore how people felt about iTunes, because it's not all sunshine and roses, particularly if you ever had to deal with the Windows-based version of the program. Oh, and before I go any further, I should mention that when Apple talked about ending iTunes, they were really just talking about Macs. At the time of this recording, the company hasn't said anything about what it's planning for the PC version. PC Mag reported that there's no immediate plan for it to disappear from Windows. So, there's that. Okay, so, iTunes. Let's talk about the program and where Apple was when it was first announced back in 2001, because it was a very different company from the one we're used to today. In fact, it really behooves us to look over Apple's history leading up to that moment. Because the company was, let's call it, it was in a transition, to put it gently. So, really had been through an existential crisis. Arguably, the crisis began when Steve Jobs inserted himself into the development process of various products, like the Macintosh line of computers, and then complicated a process and alienated many over at Apple in the same go. And this eventually precipitated in his being fired, or at the very least, he was pushed aside so far away that he would leave the company in 1985. Steve Wozniak, the other co-founder of Apple, also left the company around that time, though he had sort of stepped back quite a bit already after surviving a plane crash in 1981. Over the next few years, lots of things would change at Apple. John Scully, who was the guy who came over to Apple from Pepsi and had served as the president of the company, he was also the man who was responsible for pushing out Steve Jobs, would become chairman of Apple in 1993. Michael Spindler would become the CEO. Then, just a few months later, Scully resigned his position as chairman, and he was replaced by Mike Marcula. Marcula, in turn, would step down just a couple of years later. Gil Emilio would become chairman and CEO of Apple in 1996. By this point, Apple was struggling. Sun Microsystems had offered to acquire the company, but Emilio turned down that proposal. And you could call that a great decision. But Emilio also made some questionable choices, such as allowing other companies to sell Mac clone computers— by running Mac operating system software on non-Apple computers. This gave other companies the opportunity to sell computers running Mac operating system at a lower price than what Apple was charging. 
And making matters worse was that Microsoft had released Windows 95, which was a significant update to the Windows platform while the Mac operating system was looking more than a little dated at the time. Amelia was also unhappy with the progress, or lack thereof, on the next version of the Mac operating system, codenamed Copeland. In an effort to solve that problem, Amelia led the charge for Apple to acquire a company called Next, N-E-X-T. That company happened to be the brainchild of one Steve Jobs, who founded Next after leaving Apple in the 1980s. And that set the scene for Jobs to become the next CEO of Apple. He first served as an advisor to the company, but he began maneuvering with the board of directors in an effort to become chairman again. Emilio eventually left the company after butting heads with Steve Jobs, though to be fair, Emilio was also at the helm during the worst financial quarter in Apple's history. June 27, 1997 was the final day of that horrible quarter in which Apple lost $56 million. So just let that sink in. In just three months, the company lost more than 50 million bucks. No wonder many people predicted that Apple was not long for this world. Steve Jobs was named by the board as the interim CEO. He would actually refer to his own title as ICEO. Cute, right? But it was serious business. Analysts predicted that Apple was about three months away from bankruptcy when Jobs took over. So he had a huge hurdle to overcome. And he made some really big changes. Some were seen as cute, like the iMac. Some were seen as the deepest of betrayals, like when Apple and Microsoft announced a partnership in a five-year agreement to have Office software come over to the Mac. And while not all his decisions were lauded by the Apple faithful, he did get the ship turning around. At the Macworld conference in 1998, he announced that Apple had ended the first quarter of 98 with a $45 million profit. By the end of that year, the company had earned $309 million. In 2000, Steve Jobs made the transition from interim CEO to honest-to-goodness CEO. And behind the scenes at Apple, work was progressing on a trio of big projects that would transform the company. One of them was the OS X operating system, which is still the basis of Mac operating systems today. One was iTunes. And one that would come out a little bit after the other two was the iPod. Now keep in mind, at this stage, Apple had not yet fully reestablished itself. Steve Jobs could still fill a room for a press conference, but this was years before Apple would wow crowds with the iPhone or surprise skeptics like me with the iPad. Apple, the company, was still on uncertain footing though it had been an upward trajectory after nearly falling apart in the late 1990s. One thing Jobs knew to do was to pay attention to emerging trends. One of those trends that was just starting to gain traction involved the MP3 audio compression format. Early adopters were starting to rip music from CDs to their computers, and a couple of companies had created portable MP3 players, the digital equivalent of a Sony Walkman cassette player, but one that could hold a library's worth of music. And a couple of former Apple employees named Bill Kincaid and Jeff Robin had created an interesting program that could turn a computer into a digital jukebox, specifically a Mac computer. Now, both Kincaid and Robin had worked on Copeland, 
that Mac operating system version that Emilio had discarded in favor of the next platform from Steve Jobs. Once the decision was made to ditch the work they had done on Copeland, both Kincaid and Robin had left Apple, and they went on to pursue work at different companies. They were uh, separated and working on individual opportunities. Now, the origins of what would become iTunes should be pretty relatable to anyone out there. One day, Bill Kincaid was driving up to a racetrack to practice driving his race car at super high speeds. I mean, we've all been there, right? Anyway, he was listening to NPR when he heard a bit about the Diamond Rio MP3 player. Kincaid wrote that this was actually the first time he had even heard of the MP3 file format, which is kind of interesting because it was definitely in the news because of file sharing, but I'll get into that more in a bit. Toward the end of the report on NPR, the person on the radio said something like, it won't work with Max." And Kincaid, being a former Apple employee, thought he could do something about that. And he ended up enlisting his former coworker Robin, in the pro- effort. So Kincaid built the back end of the program and en- enlisted Jeff Robin to work on the front end, the user interface side. And the result was software called SoundJam MP. And it worked on Macs, and it was interoperable with the Diamond Rio MP3 player. Jobs somehow heard about this software and was impressed with the work done by the former Apple employees, so he had Apple purchase the application. They also hired Kincaid and Robin to come back into the fold at Apple. And Robin, by the way, was in charge of iTunes all the way up to its dissolution. Kincaid and Robin joined a team that took SoundJam MP and they began to transform it into something new, something belonging to Apple. And this leads us up to January 9th, 2001, when Steve Jobs took the stage at the Macworld conference. He started off talking about OS X, and he moved on to talk about hardware for a while. And about an hour into the presentation, somewhere around 55 minutes, he segued over to talking about music. Now, this was months before the company would reveal the iPod. That was still a secret. So at this stage, Jobs was talking about the process of taking music CDs and ripping the music to your computer. Jobs talked about stuff that I think we all take for granted these days. He talked about the opportunity to take a music collection, rip it to a hard drive, and then create playlists from that music. You can mix and match anything you like. You could have a playlist with two songs from the New York Dolls, three from Iggy Pop, half a dozen from David Bowie, four from the Talking Heads, and... Gosh, I'd really like to listen to a playlist like that. Anyway, you could make the digital equivalent of an old mixtape on cassette, or you could turn your computer into a digital jukebox. But unlike a cassette, you could reorder those songs any way you liked, any time you liked. You would never be stuck in one particular configuration. The beauty of having your music in a digital format is that you have tons of options, so you can shift things around or even listen to your entire music library on shuffle so that you never have the same listening experience twice in a row. Beyond that, you could use the program to burn your playlist to a CD. Now, in this case, you'd be stuck with whatever order you decided upon when you made the CD, unless you were using a rewritable CD, in which case you could wipe it and start again, But back in those days, burning a CD could take several minutes, and most of us didn't have the patience to do it again if we realized we had fudged the order of the songs. Jobs then went on to talk about portable MP3 players, 
again, without hinting that Apple was making one of their own. He talked about how it was necessary to have software on a computer that could interface with MP3 players to transfer music from computer to player. This was necessary because back in those days, MP3 players required a wired connection to synchronize with a host computer. There really were no Wi-Fi MP3 players in the early days, so you had to pair your MP3 player with a computer using a cable. I know, it's like the Stone Age, right? Steve Jobs finished his introduction before actually unveiling iTunes by talking about internet radio stations. These were pretty young in 2001, but were growing in popularity. Audio compression had allowed stations to stream radio over the internet, giving them the ability to reach many more listeners than terrestrial radio, particularly for radio stations that had lower-powered transmitters. Now, this leads us up to the actual introduction of iTunes, which I'll talk about in just a moment after we take this quick break. Now, I know all those features are old news to us today. It's been nearly 20 years since Steve Jobs gave that presentation. And let's be fair, iTunes would not be the first program to help people organize a digital music library. There were others that already existed. But Apple always had a certain style to it. And Apple designers are genuinely really good at what they do and typically create intuitive, powerful interfaces. So it wasn't just that iTunes could do these things, it's that it could do those things and look good at the same time. It was easy to understand. It wasn't so cluttered or complex as others. And Jobs took opportunity to really hammer home how iTunes, unlike most of the popular digital music applications that were on the market already, was much easier to use and to understand. He contrasted iTunes with other media software. He criticized how the competition made everything too cluttered and confusing. He said that companies just had confused options with operability. Jobs also said that the competition put in arbitrary restrictions in their programs in an effort to convince users to upgrade to the paid version of those programs. He said that the software would throttle the ripping and burning speeds for CDs, as well as use lower quality settings to encode music into MP3 files. So yeah, you could download one of these applications, and it technically would work, but it would purposefully hinder itself and give you a substandard experience. And this was all done in an effort to upsell the user to a pro version of that software, which would remove those restrictions. So, said Jobs, these companies weren't offering an improved piece of software for a premium. Rather, they had purposefully downgraded their software's capabilities to create the incentive for people to cough up cash for the full version. Seems like a a backwards way to go about it. Now, in a demonstration, Jobs ripped Love Shack off an album by the B-52s, so, you know, good choice. He explained that the program, that is iTunes, would read the data off the CD, then search the CD database and retrieve the track titles to match with the actual tracks, because that information was not encoded on the compact discs themselves. And then it would allow you to listen directly from the CD, or you could rip it to the computer. Jobs showed off how the user could build a music library and browse through that library and play stuff easily. Interestingly, he'd include a few examples by the Beatles. I say interestingly because it would take a long time before the Beatles' discography made its way to Apple. 
But this is before the iTunes store anyway. There was no way to buy music on iTunes at this point. It was all about ripping music off CDs. So at this stage, iTunes was really only a music management application. So iTunes debuted in 2001 as a way to build and organize a music library. And there was no music store yet. To put songs on iTunes, you would either do one of two things. You would rip songs off a CD, or you would use some other means to get the music files. So that could include peer-to-peer sharing networks where you are technically pirating music. That would become a big part of Jobs' discussion once the iTunes Music Store would debut a couple years later. Now, you could use iTunes to port songs over to an MP3 player, and you could use it to listen to internet radio stations, and you could use it to burn your own CDs, but that was about it. Oh, except the one more thing. Apple included an option to run a graphics application that would create trippy visuals as you listen to music, sort of a kaleidoscope effect as you were listening. And then they played about two-thirds of Love Shack. So as a Georgia native, and B-52s are from Georgia, I approve of that music choice, but at that point they should have just played the whole darn song. I mean, if you're going to play that much, might as well let it go all the way through. Jobs boasted that iTunes wouldn't throttle CD speeds. It would allow users to encode MP3 files at a higher quality than competitors were allowing. And most importantly, it would be free to download for Mac users. The tagline for iTunes was Rip, Mix, Burn. And Jobs announced that it was available right then and there for any Mac running OS 9. And the crowd went banana. A week after the presentation, Apple reported that the iTunes software had been downloaded 275,000 times. Remember, it was only available for the Mac computers at that time. Mac computers running OS 9, for that matter. And the Mac had a very small market share. So topping a quarter of a million downloads in a week was actually pretty impressive. Apple gave a quick update a few months later in March 2001 with iTunes 1.1. The major part of that update was making iTunes compatible with Mac OS X systems. Now skip ahead 10 months. Steve Jobs appeared at a special Apple Music event. He took a different approach at this event and talked about value. See, the first version of iTunes would burn CDs as normal music CDs, not as MP3 CDs. A normal CD can hold a little more than an hour's worth of audio. An MP3 CD can hold more than 100 songs as data, but it could only be read by special CD players with MP3 capability. Those were slowly becoming more prevalent, including in vehicles. So it was something that was worthwhile. And then you had MP3 player options, the newest of which would be the iPod. Jobs talked about how the iPod would hold a thousand songs on it while fitting in your pocket. Again, it's old news to us, but at the time, it was a sweet sales pitch. Never mind that other MP3 players had been on the market for quite some while. Jobs had even alluded to them back in the initial iTunes announcement. And this isn't an episode about the iPod, so I'm not going to dwell on it for too long. But at that same event, Jobs announced some updates to the iTunes software. Now iTunes 2.0 could burn MP3 files to CDs rather than creating a new audio CD. And that would allow users to put way more songs on a single disc. As long as they had a player capable of reading MP3 files, they'd be good to go. 
Apple added a couple of other options to iTunes at that stage as well, namely crossfading and an equalizer. While Steve Jobs was setting things in motion to blast Apple off into the stratosphere, iTunes continued to evolve. When iTunes 3 released in July 2002, it was with few new features. Uh, now users could assign songs a star rating, which allowed them to sort their music library by how much they liked particular songs. So if you wanted to just listen to songs you really loved, you could choose the max rating and include all those other you know, songs that you had said were fantastic and exclude all the ones that, you know, aren't really your groove at that moment. Notably, that was a feature supported in an earlier digital media player application, a different one, one called Audion. Now, according to Cable Sasser, who was co-creator of Audion, he had met with Steve Jobs and had a back and forth about the differences between iTunes and SoundJam uh, and the Audion digital media player. And he had pointed out how Audion had some features that iTunes did not, which would give their software a chance in the market against the giant iTunes. Jobs actually pointed out that the version of iTunes that Sasser was talking about was just version 1.0, and that subsequent versions would add features, features like the ones Audion had. Sasser also said that he found out Apple had allegedly originally intended on purchasing Audion and turning Audion into iTunes, and that SoundJam was technically Apple's second choice. But Audion at the time was in negotiations with a different company, and it kind of put Apple on hold, and the opportunity passed them by. And on a side note, today Audion is no more. It was actually discontinued in 2004. And whether this was another example of one of Steve Jobs' favorite quotes frequently attributed to Pablo Picasso, that being, good artists borrow, great artists steal, that's beyond my knowledge. But it does seem plausible that Apple might have taken some inspiration from Audion after having that meeting in 2001. Another new feature in iTunes 3 was the introduction of smart playlists. Essentially, a smart playlist allowed iTunes users to set certain rules that the program would follow moving forward in order to automatically create playlists. So let's say you're a big fan of the band The Shut Ups. You have a playlist of all their songs, and you could just keep adding to that playlist as new albums come out from The Shut Ups. But with smart playlists, you could set up a rule so that every time you added new songs to your library from The Shut Ups, those songs would automatically get added on to that particular playlist. iTunes also had a play count for songs added in iTunes 3, so you could create a playlist of the songs you listen to the most frequently. That list would change dynamically the more you used iTunes to listen to stuff. So maybe one month you find you're just really fixated on the classic song Come a Little Bit Closer by Jay and the Americans. And because you've listened to it a billion times, it pops up on your most played playlist. But over time, you get out of this whole fixation on the song, and eventually it gets swapped out for some other song that now you are totally focused on. iTunes 3 also added a feature called Sound Check. The purpose of Sound Check is to act as a sort of levelizer for volume. And maybe you've experienced this kind of thing where you're listening to digital music and one song is pretty quiet, so you're turning the volume way up so you can hear it properly. And then the next one comes on, and it's way too loud. It's blasting your eardrums. 
To minimize that kind of experience, Soundcheck would attempt to bring the volume of different songs closer together to the same level to avoid a jarring experience. One last thing that iTunes 3 added was support for Audible.com audiobooks. Back then, Audible.com was its own standalone company. It would actually be a few more years before Amazon would acquire it. Now, I add this because I imagine Apple and Amazon are kind of competitive with each other on most occasions. Audible.com is known for audiobooks, and this would also help pave the way for a future form of media to emerge, the podcast. While iTunes 3 added in some features that increased the digital jukebox program's functionality, it would be the fourth version of iTunes that would really bring it along with a, a component that would have a massive impact on the entertainment industry. In April 2003, Apple unveiled iTunes 4, which included a little thing called the iTunes Store. The music business would never be the same again. At the 2003 Apple Music event, Steve Jobs took the stage to talk about the new changes to iTunes. He talked about how iTunes would now support advanced audio coding, or AAC files, which is an audio compression format similar to MP3s, but with generally better sound quality. And then he talked about the iTunes Store and how Apple was going to change the way we acquire music, which I'll talk about more in just a second after we take this quick break. Upon the initial release of iTunes and up through 2003, Apple's official line was that you would add music to iTunes by ripping tracks off of CDs you had purchased. But even in 2001, when iTunes first debuted, that was really being pretty coy. Back in the late 90s, services like Napster allowed users to share and download files, including ripped audio tracks. All you needed was the Napster software and an internet connection, and you could start pulling music off the internet to add to your own personal library for free. The greatest fears of the music industry were realized. People had the chance to pirate music to their heart's content. And lots of people really went hog wild with that concept. The music industry struck back, and Napster itself was first shut down in 2001, but the cat was out of the bag. There were numerous other services that were doing effectively the same thing, and people were rapidly acquiring massive libraries of music because it seemed like everything was available all the time, always. But, argued Jobs, what if buying music online was really easy? One of the reasons piracy existed, he argued, is that buying music online was really a, a, a non-option. There was no legal way of doing it, and the few places where you could get a digital track made it a real hassle. You had existing services like Rhapsody, but they required a subscription, so you couldn't just pop on to buy the tracks you wanted, and there was no guarantee you'd be allowed to download the track you liked in the first place. A another similar service was called Pressplay, and that was another subscription service. And you could download songs from Pressplay and from Rhapsody, but they would require you to spend an extra amount on top of your subscription fee in order to download a track. And Jobs pointed out, at least with Pressplay, if you let your subscription lapse, you would no longer be able to play your downloaded music. There was DRM attached to it, so that only if your subscription was current would you be able to listen to the music you had downloaded to your machine. You would have files on your computer you would not be able to access. Your library would be locked off from you. 
no one out there was big enough to create the sort of marketplace where major labels could strike deals to have their catalogs available for purchase and download. No one was offering the software for free without the need for any sort of subscription, and no one was giving users the freedom they wanted to download songs and play them where and when they wanted to. And that ended up being the pitch for the iTunes Music Store. On a side note, one of the most interesting things about this 2003 presentation, which you can find on YouTube, by the way, is that Jobs takes time to dismiss the idea of subscription services for music streaming. He pointed out that for decades, the model for consumers was to go out and buy music, either on LP albums, cassette tapes, CDs, singles, or whatever. He argued that this had become an intrinsic part of how we as consumers relate to music. We're used to owning copies of it. And therefore, the subscription model opposed how we preferred to interact with music. Now, I just wanted to mention this, that because today we are back to a lot of subscription-based services. That's the the new prevalent model out there, many of which have an ad-supported free tier and a paid-for ad-free experience. And it's interesting that the environment Jobs was dismissing in 2003 is now the reality in 2019. Now, that's not to say I think that Jobs was wrong when he said that. I think for the time, he was absolutely right. And the success of iTunes is evidence supporting that stance. But things would change over time. All right, back to iTunes. Jobs laid out how establishing the iTunes store was actually a a pretty tough endeavor. To make it happen, Apple had to meet with what were known as the Big Five. These were the five big music labels that represented nearly the entire music publishing industry outside of some small independent operations. He also mentioned that, at the time, tech companies and publishing companies weren't the best of friends, largely because of the piracy issues I just mentioned. Jobs laid out the terms of the agreement that applied to users. At the time of launch, the music store had 200,000 tracks. Users would be allowed to burn an unlimited number of CDs of their music libraries, provided the CDs were for personal use. Now, I'm not going to pat the music industry on the back for this, since in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and in lots of other places, it has long been established that it's perfectly legal to create a backup copy of a copyrighted work if it is for your personal use, even if in the process of making the backup, you are transforming the way the copyrighted work is stored. So for example, if you have a bunch of audio CDs, ripping those audio CDs to convert them into MP3s is perfectly legal if it's for personal use as a backup. But hey, it's so nice that the labels agreed to abide by the rules. As a concession to the music industry, Apple did put in a governor in iTunes to prevent it from being used to burn unlimited copies of the same set of songs onto CDs. You could burn the same playlist to CD 10 times, but if you wanted to do it an 11th time, you would have to change the playlist in some way. You couldn't have the exact same playlist burned on CD after CD, and that would in theory stop people from using iTunes to produce bootleg copies of albums. Though you could just as easily get a CD reader and a CD burner, produce one CD using iTunes, and then churn out the copies using the reader and burner that bypass iTunes altogether, but that's a step that most people wouldn't really be aware of or willing to take. Similarly, 
the agreement allowed users to put their music on an unlimited number of iPods. This future-proofed music libraries. You didn't have to worry about the new iPod coming out, but your license to put your library on there had expired or was no longer applicable or something. Jobs also introduced the concept of authorizing machines to play music libraries. With iTunes 4, you could load your iTunes library on up to three Mac computers. You'd download to one computer, then you could burn files to CD and transfer them to the other two if they were bought from the iTunes Music Store. But you would be limited to those three Mac computers. If you got a new computer and you wanted to move your library to the new one, you'd first have to deauthorize one of the three Macs already hosting those tunes on your library. Jobs also revealed that songs would sell for 99 cents each, and there'd be no subscription fee on top of that. This was actually one of the toughest battles Jobs had to fight with the music labels, who collectively were worried that by allowing people to buy songs a la carte, the process would kill off the concept of the record album. And record albums were the foundation for the recorded music industry. See, people would have to buy entire albums in order to get two or three songs that they really wanted. And an album could cost $15 or $20. So the music industry was raking in cash, and it didn't even have to worry about making every track on an album a hit, because really you just needed one or two to sell the albums in the first place. You can understand why the industry would resist the move to selling songs a la carte, the same way you could understand why music lovers really wanted that option. Jobs was able to convince the record labels that offering up the option to buy songs individually would not be the end of the world, in part because of the limitations Apple seemed to face at the time. During these negotiations, iTunes was not yet available on Windows PCs. The Macintosh had its devoted followers, but they represented a very small percentage of the overall computer market. Less than 10% of all computers were Mac computers. So in other words, Apple's impact would be so small that even if people did buy single songs and even if they did issue albums, they decided that albums are no longer relevant, the music labels probably wouldn't even notice. It was too small of a group of people. Besides, file sharing had already meant that people were downloading music song by song. So, at least with Apple's method, the labels could make some money off of it. Another nod to the concerns of the music industry was in the use of digital rights management, or DRM, on the music files from the iTunes store, which locked the music onto Apple devices or computers running iTunes. I kind of talked about that with the deauthorizing. Whether Jobs was in favor of this at the time or not, I don't know, but I do know that over time he spoke out against DRM, saying the strategy ultimately hurt the legitimate consumer and that it shouldn't be used. But at the time, Apple was kind of in a place where it had to agree to it, even if, uh, if Jobs didn't really like it. And honestly, I don't know if that time, if Jobs had formed that opinion yet. The songs in the iTunes store were in AAC format, encoded at 128 kilobits per second, giving what Jobs claimed was a sound quality to rival that of actual audio CDs. He revealed that every song would have a free 30-second preview so users could make sure that the song they were buying was the one they actually wanted in the first place, and every song would have album cover art to come along with it, no longer making a digital song library just a list of file names. The crowd at the event was receptive to Jobs' announcement, 
And he didn't really go into the business side on the back end. He didn't talk about how much money Apple would make off every sale. Generally speaking, the figure most people cite in that regard is that Apple would take about 30 cents off every 99-cent sale. The rest would go to the artist or, more likely, to the music label that then would pay out a portion to the artist. 30 cents a pop is pretty small, but Apple was able to do the old cliché of making it up in volume. Sure, a single purchase would net the company three shiny dimes, but in mass, the company was looking at millions and later on, billions of dollars in revenue. In fact, according to Apple, people bought more than a million songs in the first week of the iTunes music store going live. The company also stated that more than half of those songs purchased were in the form of album purchases, which helped allay the fears that iTunes was going to render the concept of albums completely moot. And perhaps more impressively, Apple announced that more than half of the 200,000 songs it initially made available had been purchased at least once. Making 300 grand within one week of launching a, a brand new online store is pretty sweet. But it got better for Apple because the company also saw a big jump in iPod sales. So Apple had just introduced the third generation iPod and it was a hot commodity. Now Apple was making money both off the hardware side and the service side of digital music. Apple had launched the store in April 2003 and updated it in October of that year, adding some features like the option to buy online gift certificates for family and friends, and also an allowance feature that let users create sort of a music bank account. They could put money into this allowance, and that would help them budget their entertainment purchases. So they'd say, all right, well, I'm going to put 10 bucks aside, and that's all I can use this month. So I'm going to put that in my allowance, and once that's gone, I have to wait until the following month before I put another $10 in there. It was kind of a way to control purchases. Oh, and it was also in that update that iTunes would finally come out to the Windows PC market. Now, as someone who got iTunes around that time for a Windows PC, I can tell you that the effortless experience enjoyed by the Mac users wasn't quite the same one I had when I used iTunes, which felt like a sluggish behemoth on my Windows machine, but we'll chat more about the differences in the next episode. Apple was able to get the music labels on board with this move to Windows, largely because Jobs had user data to support his argument. The labels saw that people were eager to purchase music online if it was an easy experience. They didn't have to worry about downloading a corrupted file, or worse yet, accidentally getting hold of malware when they were trying to download a song. They also knew that the quality of the recording would meet their expectations because it was all coming from Apple. And the users hadn't ditched the concept of purchasing albums. So iTunes had made itself a home over on Windows machines with the blessing of the music labels. And it was a license to print money. By the end of the year, the iTunes Music Store reportedly sold more than 70 million songs. That's a lot of music. Many factors contributed to Apple's phenomenal growth in the 2000s. But I don't think it's hyperbole to say that iTunes contributed an enormous amount to the financial success of the company. It certainly would prove to be a powerhouse in the years to come. By 2004, the music store contributed to $278 million in revenue from, quote, other music products, end quote, according to Apple's annual financial report. Uh, now, that category wasn't just iTunes Music Store. It also included iPod accessories, 
the iPod itself was separated from that category, as well as iPod-related services. Now, just to peek into our crystal ball for a second, on the 10th anniversary of the music store launching, that would be in 2013, analyst Horace Dedieu estimated that the store generated revenue in excess of $12 billion. Now, to put that in perspective, Apple the company, the whole company, reported a total revenue of $8 billion in 2004. So a decade after launching, the iTunes Music Store was generating far more revenue than the entire company had managed during its launch period. But we've got some more stuff to talk about between the years 2004 and 2013. So join me for the next episode, where we'll continue the iTunes story and how the program grew and maybe even talk about why it grew beyond all reason before it finally met its end in the summer of 2019. But this wraps up this episode. If you have suggestions for future episodes, whether it's a company, a specific technology, a person in tech, or any other technologically oriented topic, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop on by our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find an archive of all of our episodes over there, plus links to our social media presence and a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Yeah.